Back in the 70s, board games and improv theater had a baby, and it was called the role-playing game. These games allowed a generation of kids to live out their dreams of slaying dragons and saving kingdoms, all while sitting in their bedrooms and basements. Today, gaming has moved into the cultural mainstream, and role-playing games are back with a vengeance. Join us now as five of these former kids come out of the basement and onto the internet to experience adventure, mystery, and obscure pop culture references. It's time for Roll for Combat. Hey everyone, welcome to Roll for Combat. I'm your GM and host, Steven Glicker, and in this special episode, I sit down with Paizo's Luis Loza and Eleanor Ferron, and we are going to be discussing the Lost Omens World Guide. That's right. This book was actually supposed to come out during Gen Con, and it was supposed to be part of the initial release of Pathfinder 2nd Edition. It was supposed to be the core rule book, the bestiary, and the world guide. But because of a printing issue, the world guide is going to be released at the end of August instead. However, I was able to get my grubby little hands on an early copy of this and went through it. And today's discussion is going to give you all the information so that you know what the heck the world guide is. There's not been a ton of information about this world guide. So even when I got it, I wasn't exactly sure what to expect and what to find inside this world guide. I mean, it's obviously a world guide. That makes sense. But how is this going to affect the way I play Pathfinder? How is it going to change the ways I can build my character? What's the point of the world guide? How is this world guide different than the inner sea world guide? Basically, what the heck is this world guide and why do I need it? And I sit down with them, we discuss all the things you need to know about the world guide, what it includes, what the point of the world guide is, how it works. So that really is the main point of the interview. We, of course, discuss the creation of the guide, but we go through what you can find in it, what the point of it is, how it can help your campaign, both as a GM and a player, and all the new options you have when you build your character. That's actually the best part about this world guide. It's going to give you a lot of really cool options that allow you to build characters that fit into the world and the history of Galarian unlike ever before. But anyhow... Let's get into the interview, but real quick, right before I get into the interview, I do want to mention, those of you new to Roll for Combat, do stick around. We start our brand new The Fall of Plaguestone actual play podcast next week, Thursday, August 1st. It drops. You're going to like it. We got half the team from Roll for Combat, half the team from No Direction. It's heavy role-playing. We got sound effects, background music, announcers, amazing artwork. Wait until you see the artwork for these characters. I got some of the best artists from Paizo working on this stuff. It is very, very different from our Dead Sons Adventure Path. Our Dead Sons Adventure Path is kind of guys sitting around drinking beer and playing Starfinder. This one is, well... It's almost like actors playing Pathfinder. Everyone's doing voices. Everyone's in character the whole time. I'm even stunned at myself when I listen to this podcast. It's like I'm listening to someone else. But do check that out. It comes out next week. I think you're all going to like it. I'm really impressed with the show. I must say so myself. So be on the lookout for that. Anyhow, with that, let's get into my interview. 
Hey everyone, Steve here, and I am sitting down with two more guests from Paizo. That's right, I am sitting down with Pathfinder developers, that's right, too, Luis Loza and Eleanor Farron, and we are going to be talking all about the new Lost Omens guide that's coming out in a few weeks. Hello, Luis and Eleanor. Hey there. Hey there. So we have one mic being shared between two people. So we're going to do our best to make sure that everyone can hear what we're talking about. So the very first thing, let's just jump right into it. The Lost Omens World Guide. What is it? Because obviously everyone knows what the Pathfinder 2nd Edition rules are. Everyone knows what a bestiary is. But what is the whole point and what is the Lost Omens World Guide going to be covering? Well, the... The core rule book has a nice little chapter that covers the age of Lost Omens, which is a name for our setting you know, taking place in Galarian, but it only has about 16 to 20 pages or so. It's pretty short, and the Lost Omens World Guide is a big, full, uh, in-depth view of the setting uh, for, for people who are more interested in that beyond just what they see in the, the initial chapter. As you say, uh, everyone knows what a core rule book is. So the title on this is, is sort of meant to be self-explanatory. It's a guide to the world of Galarian, or rather the inner sea region. Now, this seems very similar to the inner sea world guide, which is probably one of the books I've used more than any other. It's something I often will go to to find the history of Galarian and to understand different parts of it. So how is the Lost Omens World Guide different or build upon the Inner Sea World Guide? Well, in a lot of ways, it is the same like the, the Inner Sea World Guide. It, it presents all of the different nations and regions uh, presented in the Inner Sea region of Galarian. Uh, this time around, though, it's actually about half, the, closer to half the size of the, the initial book. Uh, some of the big changes, though, are that because the... Uh, uh, Pathfinder setting has been around for close to 12 years at this point. We wanted to update what the setting looked like. The snapshot that you have in the Inner Sea World Guide is set to about 2011 or so, and we wanted to bring that up to date with the new edition. So we, we've made a lot of changes to the setting, including you know, changes with what happens in adventure paths and things like that. So we can have a new snapshot and, and a new baseline for the setting uh, to work from with the second edition. Yeah, that's one thing I noticed when I was reading through it is that this one is really up to date. Like this, obviously, like when you read the Inner Sea World Guide, it gives a general history. It's almost like a guidebook or history of Galarian. But this covers more of recent history and events that have occurred, as you said, in the last like nine years or so. So it feels like this is almost an addendum to the Inner Sea World Guide to bring you up to date of what has been going on in Galarian and how things have been changing. Uh, yeah, as Louis said, this book is shorter than the Inner Sea World Guide, so we made, did our best to focus it uh, really on the present day of all of these nations. Um, didn't get into huge background histories. We want people to pick it up and know what's going on now because now is the time when they will be setting their adventures and uh, sending their PCs off into the world. So this is, yeah, as you said, meant to be the most up-to-date snapshot of Galarian as we're presenting it in going into second edition. And something else that's obviously great about this book is that you have 
Well, lots of new backgrounds and lots of new feats. So there's obviously some new items as well, but because of the modular component to Pathfinder 2nd Edition, which everyone will discover when they read the rules in a few weeks, it's very easy to add new backgrounds and new feats to the game without worried about too much about character balance or player balance because the game really is very well balanced in the sense that you know the feats are very compartmentalized you can add new feats without worrying about breaking characters too much unlike well i'll say pathfinder first edition and that's actually was my favorite section of the book i don't know if you want to go through some of them but i i mean just even some of the names of these feats are just fantastic but maybe you could talk to that and we maybe go through a few examples. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one thing we wanted to do is to show how the setting is more integrated with the rules compared to first edition. One thing we played a lot with in this book is the rarity system in the new rules. Um, most of what you see in the core rule book is either a common option, which means anyone can take it, or an uncommon option, which usually has some kind of easy way to get into it. For example, a lot of the key powers a monk uh, has access to, but anyone else wouldn't have access to, the, the easy way to get to them is to become a monk. Uh, so we did stuff like that here, where we have different archetypes, one for each of the 10 meta regions that we presented in this book. For example, we have the Pathfinder Agent, which is based around Absalom, and normally that would be an uncommon option, so a GM could feel free to make that something that is you know, inaccessible in their games and, and prevent their games from going into a direction that they don't want to, or you can decide, hey, I want to have that in my game. We give you the options to allow players to get pretty easy access to that by joining up the, with the Pathfinder Society and being someone that hails from Absalom. Yeah, I'm looking at that right now. And then some of the backgrounds are actually even fun backgrounds. Like you have Child of the Puddles, you have Pathfinder Hopeful as a background, you could be a trade consortium underling you know these are obviously things you hear about especially in society over and over again and it's nice that it's like directly in the rules that you can now have a background from the absalon region tied right into the history of galarian and absalon yeah, absolutely we, we want to make sure that uh as much as as we can outside of the core rule books that all of these options feed back into the setting so it makes your character feel more uh, cemented into the world of Galarian. Yeah, I'm looking here. Some of my favorite ones in the Ustalav region. You could be a Whispering Way Scion as a background, an Ustalav academic. There's some pretty great stuff here. There's, and a lot of this obviously comes from the history of the, the adventure paths. So, you know, if you play through some of those adventure paths, you can see the direct influence of these backgrounds, which I really liked a lot. Yeah, absolutely. A lot, a lot of the, the adventure paths serve as inspiration both for these backgrounds and some of the other options that you see throughout the book as well. And then for the feats, you have things like the Red Mantis Assassin's feats, you have Hell Knight feats, Runescard feats, Pathfinder Agent feats. Like you can, you know, if you want to actually become a Red Mantis Assassin, there's there's options now for you to go down that path directly. It's it's very cool. Yeah, and, and what we did with a lot of these archetypes is we we uh, selected a lot of what we felt were uh, iconic organizations or, or options that you may have seen throughout the last uh, edition of Pathfinder. So we have things like the Red Mantis, which are very obviously a, a visual iconic 
uh, striking organization or the Hell Knights uh, in a similar vein. We also then dipped into things that, uh, like the uh, uh, Living Monolith for the Golden Road region that was actually a prestige class that showed up two different times throughout the, the history of Pathfinder. We thought, well, you know, people have seen this enough uh, already. They, they get to see it again right away in, in the, at the start of second edition. Yeah, I think it's uh, sort of common knowledge for people who have been following along at this point that the core rulebook only has the multi-class archetypes uh, in it just because I think it's already huge enough. Um, so the world guide was a really uh, good place to fit in all of these more specific archetypes that not everyone might be interested in, but that were really iconic to the setting and very flavorful and hopefully will excite a lot of players to try them out. So how did you guys decide what to put in this book? Because as you said, the book is much smaller than the Inner Sea World Guide, and you have to sort of do a balance between all the regions. So how did you uh, come about? Was there meetings where everyone got to vote? Did everyone pitch their favorite ideas? Like why Red Mantis? versus, you know, some other faction? Why not um, Whispering Way, you know, instead? Something like that. Yeah, there were definitely a lot of meetings to determine what did or didn't make the cut in terms of player options and things like that. Uh, part of the, the way we decided things is by the, the new presentation here we have with breaking everything up into one of the 10 meta regions in the inner sea. Uh, in the inner sea world guide, we present you with 40-odd nations one right after the other and it can be a great resource if you know exactly what you're looking for hey i need to go look up the hold of belkson to find out about the orcs i'll go to that specific section but if you're just trying to read this book it can be daunting to read one nation after the other after the other and try to keep track of everything so one of the first things we did is break things up on the map into these 10 meadow regions the, you know, the golden road the saga lands the eye of dread things like that uh, to make it easier for both GMs and players to zoom in on what part of the region they wanted, and then from there, uh, you know, focus on, on particular nations or, or cities and things like that within the particular uh, meta region. Yeah, um, and another advantage to breaking it up that way was that uh, I think I think in the Inner Sea World Guide, all the nations are alphabetized, as you would generally assume, but that means that you don't have a great idea just reading through where anything is. You have to flip back and forth between the map. Uh, in our presentation, we've got like a map showing all these nations and they're geographically near each other. So you have more of a picture of what's going on in that entire region as opposed to just an abstracted list of nations that you don't necessarily uh, have a great idea what's going on around them unless you do a whole lot of extra work. Um, and so with those 10 meta regions, we were looking for something iconic from that smaller uh, picture of the world as opposed to the entire of Galarian as a whole. And that's, that's when we then had to have our conversations of, well, we have the high seas. Do we want something like a Shackles Pirate or the Red Mantis and things like that? Or, or an old Shaliax, we, we could have you know, pulled on Nadal and, and draw, drawn something from there, or you know, the Hell Knights. And some of these were very much, very obvious freebies. The Hell Knights we want to put in because they're, they're so iconic. Their armor is so striking and, and you can recognize it pretty much anywhere. Same with the Red Mantis. Some of these we actually wanted to use uh, 
the advancement of the the calendar, that you know, the timeline here to present how the world has changed and maybe present new things. For example, with the uh, Eye of Dread region, there's a lot of stuff going on uh, with the armies of the Whispering Tyrant, Tarbafan, and the Knights of Lifewall have been scattered thanks to these armies and presenting what the new status quo is in the form of the last wall century was a great way to both show the timeline advancing and how that affects uh, the different organizations and the character options that you might be looking at. Yeah, no, I like the new way that everything is broken out. And even in the beginning of every single section, you have almost a nice little overview showing the flag, the languages, the major religions, the exports. I kind of like that. It's almost like a tour guide in a way. Yeah, our um, art director, Sarah Robinson, she was the one that put that forth. And I think it, it looks great. It makes it very easy for a GM or a player to quickly scan over the area and see, oh, this might be a place that I might be interested in because they have this particular religion, which my character follows. Or, or you know, hey, this place is full of dwarves compared to this other region, and I wanted to play a dwarf, so let's check that place out. So what are uh, some of your favorite regions or areas or new things that were added to the book? Everyone has their favorites, right? I think I'm very particular about the Golden Road region. The very first adventure path that I was ever part of, first Pathfinder adventure path that I was ever part of was the Legacy of Fire adventure path. So that has a special place in my heart and getting to you know, kind of explain how that all turned out and, and, and have a say in, in the final word of the destiny of Katapesh was pretty fun for me. And I also really like the Living Monolith archetype so it's just you know, frosting on the cake for me at that point i would say the Wangi expanse and the eye of dread uh, the eye of dread's sort of a hot mess right now and a lot of things have changed there um and i think the changes present have presented a lot of interesting turmoil conflicts um, problem solving opportunities shall we say in the region and the Wangi Expanse, I'm excited about because we haven't really gotten a chance to really get in there as much as we would have wanted in Pathfinder First Edition. And I am enjoying like this new snapshot of the area and hoping we can expand on it further in the future. Well, you did expand upon it because didn't you write uh, the upcoming Cult of Cinders that comes out in uh, a month or so? and. I believe that might uh, might uh, focus a little bit on that expanse from what I hear. Just a little bit. Just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> so um, what were the like sort of big changes? I mean, I guess we can kind of go into some spoilers that you had to sort of cover in this book. Obviously, since the last Adventure Path, Tarbafon sort of changed the map quite a bit. But what were some of the other aspects of past adventure paths that you had to incorporate in here to sort of adjust and update the book that people should be like on the lookout for? Well, there's a, a lot of things that were tied into adventure paths or modules or even uh, seasons of Pathfinder Society. Uh, Absalom has a lot of stuff going on that was tied to organized play. So if you're really into that, you probably can recognize some of the changes. There's um, the abolishment of slavery in Absalom is a big deal there. Uh, and then, you know, moving on with the adventure pass, there's been things like Rune Lords rising and returning uh, and changing the the borders within the Sagalands region. Versia used to be this big open frontier, but suddenly there's this new nation in the form of New Sassalon that has kind of nestled its uh, new 
home between the lands of the Lenorn Kings and Borussia, which I'm sure not everyone is particularly happy that they've lost some of their, their land there. And like you mentioned, the, the Whispering Tyrant is kind of on the loose now. So he is uh, kind of a looming threat in both the Iodred region and maybe for the Inner Sea region as a whole, because once his army gets big enough, it, it could overrun the entire continent of Avistan and get everywhere else. I also noticed that you, my favorite is actually Numeria, and you do have a whole section, a small section on Cassandali, the new Iron Goddess, which I was uh, very happy to see. Yeah, uh, she was a, a very big part of the Iron Gods AP. She, in a sense, was kind of a, a thing you were getting her and, and uh, learning who she was and, and understanding uh, what power she had was a big part of the, the adventure path. So it, it made sense to bring her on as a full-fledged deity, especially because it, it gave us a chance to just present new gods and show that the world has been changing. We had things like that with uh, Nocticula uh, later rising onto the, the status of a, a new deity from her original status as a demon lord. Uh, and we even got to explain, you know, what happened to Kevath Cool. It turns out that you, the PCs were able to stop the uh, Technic League and, and liberate him from his addiction to the Numerian fluids. And now we're not exactly sure what he's going to get up to. Yeah, now that's actually probably my favorite part because one of the aspects of Pathfinder, at least for me and imagine everyone else over the years, is that the books, it's not that they feel static, but they felt like a snapshot in time and they didn't really always acknowledge sort of the passage of major events within the world of Galarian. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with the books were written early in the life cycle and that a lot of these events occurred only within a few years. But you read this and it feels like, okay, this is a lot has happened in the last 10, 11, 12 years, and we have acknowledged it. And here is everything that's occurred. So even as almost a history lesson of what's occurred since the first edition of Pathfinder came out, I found this book interesting because as you mentioned, I mean, I've played a lot of the adventure paths, but I haven't played every single one. So I don't know the history. I don't know what happened in every single one, but you can read this and find out. It's like Cliff Notes versions for the last 20 adventure paths of what's happening, as well as major events, as you said, in uh, Pathfinder Society as well. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing we we're hoping to inspire is, and there's, there's a study that says if people know a few spoilers, they tend to enjoy a story more. So maybe if you know how things ended up in the world now, you might be interested in going back and trying out those adventure paths and see exactly what it took to get there. Uh, if you hear about these rune lords, you might be excited to try to fight them yourself. Now that you know they're such a big deal, maybe you want to kind of roll back the clock in your home campaign and and give that a go. You guys must have had a meeting there because James Jacobs gave me the exact same quote two days ago about the the spoilers. Like uh huh, uh huh. <laughs> uh, I think we just uh, kind of all understand uh, how that can be beneficial to know a little bit about how the world has changed. I completely agree. I mean, it's the same way if you think about when you see like movies for like the Avengers or something like they give just enough spoiler that you want to go in and see how that occurs. You know, you, you obviously know things are going to happen. And so you use you, you said it's like Return of the Rune Lords. Well, you kind of spoiled it in the title there. Right. But not really, because that's kind of the whole point of the adventure. Yeah. Or it's like when you see a movie trailer and you see that five second shot from that cool action scene, you want to see what else is happening around all those explosions just gets you excited to to be part of that. 
I'm going through this as well, and I see you guys added a whole bunch of new items. And my probably my favorite one is the most basic. You have an item level zero swim fins that allow you to swim in the water. What was like, I, I mean, I see a lot of things here. You have a lot of item 20 epic rare items left and right throughout the book. But then you're like item zero swim fins. Yep, we're adding that to the book. When we uh, assigned this to our freelancers, we wanted to make sure when it made sense to provide uh, new mechanical options. So things like the Sun Orchid Elixir show up because we mention it quite a bit in the Golden Road section. But things like the flippers or the, uh, the jellyfish lantern make it easier for GMs to run campaigns in the, the sections that we present. The high seas, a lot of it talks about underwater civilizations and, and you know the different things you can do underwater. And that's really tough to do by default with the, the core rulebook option. So we figured it, it'll be easier to have this now for GMs to toss to their players at the start of the campaign. Hey, we're about to go underwater. Put on these diving fins. It'll make it easier for swimming and, and make the, the whole campaign more enjoyable. So, you know, when, when it makes sense, we want to provide uh, mechanical options like this to just augment or, or supplement uh, campaigns that, that we hope that this book inspires. Yeah, another item I like is in the Mwangi region, the uh, Blessed Tattoo. I actually love when PCs can use tattoos as an item. I think it's really powerful. I've seen it in literature before when people like, you know, will do spell books on their body, you know, so when they're captured and they still have their spells, things like that. I, I really love that. And it's, I'm glad to see that there's still options for that. Yeah, that was from um, that was from the orcs that live in the Mwangi Expanse jungles. Uh, they have appeared before in Pathfinder One, but I think they uh, sort of have been overlooked. We didn't mention a lot about them or just mention them very much at all. Um, but they were uh, specifically said to have sacred tattoos to ward off the influence of Angazan. The uh, demon lord that's very active in that area and so he included that in here as sort of a thing to represent those orcs and like a special tradition from the Mwangi expanse but also uh yeah the tattoos are very popular with uh, pcs as we know so this might seem like a silly question but what exactly is the lost omens i know it's one of these things that people just assume to know but for those of us who don't really know. What what does the Lost Omens represent? So in Galarian's history, there have been lots of ages to represent different important milestones in the timeline. Uh, way long ago, 10,000 years ago, Earthfall happened and brought about the Age of Darkness. Uh, and soon enough, the Age of Anguish happened and so on and so forth. And the current age that we're in is referred to as the Age of Lost Omens, partially because with the death of Eridan, prophecy kind of has gone out the window it can't it's not really a thing you can really rely on so any omens that you were were hoping for to, to help you out there to guide you have been lost in a sense uh with the, the loss of prophecy got it so you think we're going to actually see a new change in timelines a new event if you will or you think lost omens is going to stick around for a while well uh as presented in this book, the, it's still the age of lost omens. It could be that down the line we might have 
big world-shaking event that could inspire a brand new age, but that's not anything we have any plans for at this moment. Who knows? I'm sure the likes of you know, James Jacobs and Eric Mona have their, their big plans for the setting as we move forward. So I just have more of a general question, because you guys probably got off a little easy in sense of this book covers the overall history and the culture of Galarian, as opposed to people who were doing the rules or the bestiary who were trying to write the books as the rules were being written. So what was the development like for you? I'd imagine you're, you, you guys had it a little bit easier than some of the guys who were literally trying to write monsters and feats and items for the rules while they're being written. I mean, as a personal side, I wrote some monsters for you guys for Extinction Curse, and I didn't even have the rules, and that was tough for me. So I can only imagine what it was like for you guys. This book has so many rules options that it was actually kind of tough to... We, we were also dealing with the, the ever-changing rules as we were working on it. Uh, luckily, we had uh, Mark Seichter from the design team be our design lead to kind of spearhead all the rules development passes here to make sure that was all good. And even though we weren't working too much with the rules ourselves, uh, we did have to try to corral all the different events that have happened over the last 10, 12 years or so over hundreds of different products and, and make sure that everyone is agreeing with the, the big changes that we're going to decide on. We had a, an entire meeting to confirm, hey, these are what we're going to say is the final result of each AP. And we wanted to make sure that everyone was uh, agreeing upon that and things like that. So even though we weren't coming up with new rules, there was a, a lot of work with just diving into the, the history and the lore of the setting. I mean, certainly we got up easy because this book is a lot shorter than the core rule book in Bestiary. Uh, but we did have to coordinate with a lot of the material that were in those two books to uh, make sure everything lined up. Oh, I wasn't uh, suggesting you guys had it easy. I was saying you had it easier, that's all. Yeah, a, a little easier, but yeah, it was uh, a lot of work to make sure that this ended up and where it is. And I think it, it turned out great as a result. Oh, yeah, no. And actually, as usual, the artwork, the artwork alone is great because now a lot of the artwork you can recognize as, oh, that was in the Adventure Path. A lot of the artwork seems to have come directly from Adventure Path sections. So people are familiar with the Adventure Paths can recognize in the artwork, oh, I went to that place. I went there. And that's, that's actually another, I have a lot of favorite parts of this book now I think about it. That's another one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah, there was so much previous art that we could pull upon to say, hey, we want to depict this uh, to both show, you know, that it's still the same world, but also kind of as a fun little Easter egg for people who recognize it. If, if you've been part of an AP, you might recognize a, a location that's shown in the book. Or if you're used to seeing the Hell Knight, suddenly you recognize, it, oh, that the, the Hell Knight Armager, uh, the artwork for that is the iconic Hell Knight that was used during Hell's Vengeance, and just an, another fun little treat for, for people who can uh, recognize it. And if you're brand new to the game, it just hopefully inspires you to want to choose the options that you're seeing here or go to the places that we're depicting throughout the book. So what ended up, if anything, on the cutting room floor that you can talk about? Was there anything that didn't quite make it in that you were really hoping could, but you just didn't have enough room or there wasn't an advocate for that or... Is there anything you could talk about like that? Yeah, well, each of the regions has a, a little sidebar that depicts uh, a few of the important movers and shakers that are uh, involved with the region. You know, sometimes they're 
rulers or sometimes they're, they're heroes or villains in the region. And we had uh, a few that we had to cut from each section just due to a lack of space uh, that we hope to you know, talk about in later books uh, when we get a chance. But those were we were hoping to, to get more of them just because all of them are, are interesting. We think they, they make for uh, great GM fodder for hooks uh, or adventures or, or cool NPCs that you can meet. Yeah, we also had to leave some rules elements on the cutting room floor. They just wound up too large for various sections. Uh, there were haunts that you could find if you got too close to the Isle of Terror. Uh, things like that uh, just wound up too big. Well, you could always do a second book. Uh, I mean, you guys do publish them for a living. I imagine you can come out with the Lost Omens World Guide Part 2. And we, we definitely hold on to those. I mean, they hit the cutting room floor and then are neatly filed into a, a folder where we can try to use them again uh, for, for future use. So I think we've already found a few spots here and there for some of this content. So you can look forward to that uh, later on with the, the future books. Although this is not coming out at Gen Con, it is coming out right after Gen Con, right? The book is coming out like just a few days, few weeks after Gen Con. I think it's uh, late August is when it's expected to come out. So just a few weeks after, just in time for you to have learned the rules. Uh, so then you can dive into the setting and learn the setting as well. Yeah. As someone who had to read a thousand pages, I tell you, it's uh, you'll be okay. You'll have enough to read. And then as this drops, you'll be in the perfect mindset to read through this book. And it'll make a lot more sense as well. That's also why we included the, the brief little uh, Galarian chapter in the core rulebook for people who want to get started, or if they already know the setting well enough, they can use that as a jumping off point to, to get going with their games. All right. Uh, I think I've covered just about everything I wanted to talk about. Is there anything you guys wanted to tell me? Any secrets about the development? Anything people should be on the lookout or be aware of when they flip through this book in a few weeks? Well, uh, I don't know if there's any big secrets that we don't straight up reveal here um or that we can kind of tease beyond that we do set up a lot of new gm hooks and and get different plots moving a lot of the inner sea world guide was teasing about stuff that could happen and then we ended up covering with the uh various adventure paths and we're trying to set up a lot of those here and we'll see you know if, if people like particular plots maybe we can focus on those in particular uh, i mean there's one thing that for example galt is looks like it's about to come to a head it's set to boil over we just haven't reached that right moment where we might want to look at that so that that could be a thing that if enough people are interested we would definitely be able to check out hopefully in the future i'm still waiting for geb that's the one gab is the one i want to see boil over i want to, i want to go there and i think there's a few other people here in the company that are, are interested in making sure that finally happens and the mana wastes that too yeah, I think the best uh, strategy for people who want to see things is to go on the forums or go talk to at least Stevens, the CEO, or Eric Mota, the publisher, and uh, tell them you're interested. They listen. Hmm. You know, I talk to Eric all the time. I'm going to start texting him every week about the mana waste, so let's see what happens. I'm sure that'll go over swimmingly. Oh, he'll love it. Yeah, he, he, won't, <laughs> he won't be upset at me at all. Yeah, and get all get all of your Discord followers to also text him. <laughs> sure, I get the whole podcast. He would um he would disown me, but yeah, it might be worth it. Thanks a lot, guys, for joining me. The book is great. I really enjoyed reading it. I I do like the whole new feel for Pathfinder Second Edition of how it just 
you know, it sort of is not only is the, you know, the new rule set, but the whole concept of like, okay, things have happened, things have occurred in the last 10 plus years. And we're acknowledging that and showing you how the world has changed and how you can now incorporate those changes into your game, which I really think this does a great job of doing. Yeah, we're looking forward to uh, how everyone feels about the book. I think uh, a lot of people will be very excited to see what's showing up here. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Luis and Eleanor. And uh, I will see you guys in two weeks at Gen Con. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you. Hey, everyone. Steve here. So once again, thank you, Luis and Eleanor, for sitting down and talking to me about the Lost Omens World Guide. As I said, this is a really fun book. If you are interested in the history of Galarian, this is a great book. But best of all, what I really like about this book is it basically takes the history of all the adventure paths from the first edition of Pathfinder and all the major events from Society Play and puts it in an easy-to-read format. You can catch up on, what is it, 10, 12 years of Pathfinder history in one book. The other thing it does is now we're going to actually see the power of the Pathfinder 2nd Edition system. You can see lots of cool backgrounds specifically tied into the history of Galarian that you can add for your character. And the new feats are awesome. And the coolest thing is they're uncommon. So you actually can now add uncommon feats as long as your GM agrees to your character. And there's really cool ones. The Pathfinder Agent. That one is awesome. That one is one of my favorite ones. I mean, there's just so many. There, there's so many. There's the Duelist, which is really cool. You could be a Last Wall Sentry. There's a whole bunch of feats just for being that. The Living Monolith, which is for those monk classes who want to basically become an unarmed combatant made of stone. And of course, I imagine a lot of people are going to like this one. The Red Mantis Assassin, who not only gets new feats, but actually gets a new focus spell as well, where they can become an insect. Yeah, it's really cool. Anyhow, for those of you new to Roll for Combat, this is what we do. I interview people from Paizo, we play Starfinder and Pathfinder, and we do that not only here on the show, but at our Discord channel too. That's right, for game day, we have something like 26 games going to be filled up and being played. That's right, if you want to play some Pathfinder 1st Edition, Pathfinder 2nd Edition, or Starfinder, just go to discord.rollforcombat.com and you too can join one of our games. It's starting in a few weeks. If you've never done it before, you're going to like it. It's fast-paced. It's a lot of fun. You can get into character. You can post pictures. And the community is awesome. And if you post enough, you too can get a free t-shirt. That's right. A brand new free t-shirt from Roll for Combat. And we're going to be adding all new t-shirts for Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Since we're starting a brand new actual play podcast, we have t-shirts of all the characters from our show. Well, now we have to add some new ones. And when you see the artwork, oh my god, the artwork is insane for the Pathfinder game. It is it's ridiculous. I, I can't even believe what I'm looking at when I see these things. But that's going to be coming out very, very soon. 
And if you want to hear more interviews, well, make sure you subscribe to the channel. I got lots more coming up. I'm going to be going to Gen Con next week, and I'm just going to sit down and bring out the recorder and just talk to anyone and everybody. I know I have at least two interviews lined up for Gen Con, so those are going to come out right after Gen Con. I might have another interview coming up before Gen Con. Who knows? We'll find out soon. Anyhow, with that, I'll talk and see you all guys later.